Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. This is Voices Behind the Game. I'm Jeremy Roberts. And thanks so much for joining us for this special two part episode celebrating the life, legacy, and legend of Utah Jazz coach Jerry Sloan. Coach Sloan passed away on Friday, May 22nd after a battle with Parkinson's disease and dementia that unfortunately he couldn't win. But in these two episodes, we get to celebrate his life by interviewing people that had a chance to not only know Jerry Sloan, but that actually played against Jerry Sloan in Stu Lance, the color commentator for the Los Angeles Lakers. Also, Utah broadcasting legend Steve Klauke, that had a, that actually grew up in Chicago and had a chance to see Jerry Sloan play and explains what it was like to be a fan in Chicago with the original Chicago Bull, Jerry Sloan. Ron Boone, Utah legend, radio and TV personality for the Utah Jazz, came to Utah uh, in the 70s with the Utah Stars, joined the Utah Jazz broadcasting crew in 1988, which was the same year that Jerry Sloan took over for Frank Layton and began his illustrious career with the Utah Jazz, which spanned 1,223 victories with one team. Still a record in the NBA. We also bring in three former players, Mark Eaton, the seven foot four inch center for the Jazz defensive stalwart, Thurl Bailey, that was drafted by the Jazz with the number seven pick in the 1983 draft after he won a national championship with North Carolina State in the celebrated team with coach Jim Valvano and Greg Ostertag, famous for having incredible games and incredible battles with Coach Sloan that were on again, off again. And you won't want to miss what Greg has to say and the emotions that he shares in this very, very unique and unbelievable episode. So please uh, enjoy and listen to both episodes that you will not want to miss. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy Voices Behind the Game. first segment you get to hear from Steve Klauke. He came to Utah to do radio in 1991 for the Jazz. He's the play-by-play voice for the Salt Lake Bees. He also grew up in Chicago and was a Jerry Sloan fan and got to see Jerry from the time he was drafted number four in the first round uh, to the end of his career in Chicago. Steve has great stories and amazing brain for stats and remembers so many uh, anecdotes and, and great things and it'll be really fun to hear his perspective and his stories about Jerry Sloan. Also, joining us for every uh, interview, not only is my dad, Dan Roberts, PA announcer for the Utah Jazz, but the original Jazz Bear, John Absey, who was the Bear for 25 years, um, made home games so much fun and brings so much to the table here with his insight with all of the people that come onto the show. So, Enjoy this first segment and the entire show, and you'll get a kick out of John Absey as well. Thanks for joining us. Steve Klauke, long time uh, play-by-play for the Salt Lake Bees. Weber State. Weber State, Salt Lake City, Utah radio legend. Uh, Welcome to Voices Behind the Game on this special episode of uh, remembering uh, the, the life and legend of Coach Jerry Sloan. So thanks so much for joining us. Well, I appreciate the invitation. Uh, our pleasure, our pleasure. 
So <clears throat> what we're what we're doing with our show, Steve, is that we want to have people on that uh, saw Jerry play, uh, know uh, know about his playing career, like from a fan standpoint, that played for him. We have Thurl Bailey and Mark Eaton, Eaton coming on later. Uh, they played against him, Stu Lance, the com- common color commentator for the Lakers. Lakers is coming on, and then that also commentated about him. Uh, uh, Ron Boone is coming on as well. So that's we that's the perspective we want, along with uh, my dad, Dan, and uh, John Apsey, the original Jazz Bear, to give as much uh, context to the life and legend that is Jerry Sloan because it's, uh, it's difficult to put it into words, and only the people that really interacted with him and saw him and uh, really got to know him can can put it into words. So, with that, uh, I, I want to turn it over to you and to John and Dan and let you guys wax poetic about Jerry Sloan. Well, yeah, appreciate the invitation. Like I said, uh, you know, I come at it from a different perspective because I grew up in the Chicago area and I can remember that very first season of Bulls basketball, a brand new expansion team. Matter of fact, uh, in the expansion draft, they they drafted uh, Jerry as well as Johnny Red Kerr uh, as players. But Kerr was picked for the expansion draft as a player, but was immediately named uh, the head coach. And and while uh, it was a, a lot of names on that roster that probably most people wouldn't remember, guys like Irwin Muller and Guy Rogers and and uh, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Bob Boozer, a friend of Ron Boone's. I know that uh, Jerry really stood out just because of the way he he played the game. You know, Chicago, it was a Bears town at the time. It was, uh, you know, the defense, uh, Dick Butkus and all that. And and Jerry Sloan really epitomized Butkus on the the basketball court. It was just a lot of fun to to watch him play. I think I was 11 years old the first time I saw him play in person. And the funny thing was, uh, you know, obviously when I got the job with the Jazz back in 1991, I, uh, one of the things I really couldn't wait to do is meet Coach Sloan because really he was Mr. Bull before Michael Jordan came along. As a matter of fact, uh, 1992, my second year in Salt Lake, I got to go back home for my 20th high school reunion. And one of the things they asked us to do was to send pictures of you at work, at home with your family, whatever you were doing. And so I sent a couple of pictures, uh, you know, trying to play up what I was doing. And the first picture when the video came up during the reunion was me uh, talking with John Stockton. And there was a murmur, but nothing big uh, as far as noise was concerned. But then about a minute and a half later, they showed the picture of me standing with Coach Sloan. It was almost like in this uh, reunion, he got a standing ovation because, like I say, he wasn't the leading scorer on the team. Matter of fact, I think he was the number three scorer on the team when I was in high school behind Butterbean, Bob Love, and Chet the Jet Walker. But he drew the biggest reaction uh, in this uh, reunion video. So that was a lot of fun. But then I, I remember when I first did have a chance to meet him, it was at uh, one of those old uh, uh, kissing luncheons at Tony Roma's at uh, Trolley Square <laughs> with Dave Blackwell. And I remember meeting Coach Sloan. And, you know, being the wide-eyed kid who would, uh, was uh, remembering Jerry, the player, I said, Jerry, that first season of the Bulls, they played at the International Amphitheater, which was on the south side, and it was right next door to the Chicago Stockyard. And I said, quite frankly, it smelled like it. How could you guys play there? 
And Jerry very quickly said, Steve, you forget I'm from a farm in southern Illinois. It smelled like money to me. <laughs> That's funny. That would have been him for sure. He's, his number was the first one retired, too, was it not? Right. It was, it was retired, but it was interesting. He really wasn't given much of a ceremony. Uh, the old ownership at the time was pretty cheap. And I remember being with the team in Chicago at the United Center uh, for a game, and they did a presentation to Jerry beforehand with a very nice uh, uh, number four ring that uh, he, he thought that was a wonderful uh, part of what Jerry Reinsdorf and his crew did to, to really truly honor Jerry the player. But, you know, he's a guy that, you know, a couple of years he averaged 17, 18 points a game as the number three scorer on the team. It reminds me, in 1969, on March 5th, he set his career high in scoring with 43 points. He was 19 of 36 from the field and 5 of 6 from the foul line. And, oh, I'd say about 10, 12 years ago when Tim Buckley was the beat writer for the Deseret News covering the Jazz, I kind of went up to Tim and said, hey, you ought to do an article on the an upcoming anniversary of Jerry's career high in scoring. And I gave him those stats, and so he took those stats and, and uh, talked to a couple of the players about, uh, you know, Jerry's 43 points and all that. And uh, Matt Harpering was playing for the Jazz at the time, and uh, T-Buck uh, told uh, Harpering that Jerry went 19 for 36 from the field, and Harpering got wide-eyed and go, Coach took 36 shots in a game? He'd kill us if we did that. <laughs> and, so, and, and Jerry had no idea why, but for the next two days in practice, Harpering kept calling Jerry Kobe. <laughs> How did Jerry take to that? Did you ever hear? Uh, he, he had no, he had no idea why why uh, he was being called that. And finally, it was explained to him. And uh, you know, Jerry, you know, had that little little chuckle and kind of shook it off. And uh, you know, you know, of course, remember uh, Stockton and Malone had uh, Matt Harpering's uh, nickname is Little Jerry. Wow, I'd heard that. I'd I'd seen. I think there was a game in New York where. Uh, Harpering was pissed about something, and he was just on the bench. He was stewing, and Stockton and Malone were teasing him because they, he was so serious, <laughs> and that's where the mm -hmm. little Jerry moniker came from. <laughs> mm -hmm. did, you know, did, Jerry, got he was what, uh, drafted four, right? Right. Into the NBA? Right. Yeah. And then, um, so who, in that year, who, who was one, two, and three? Well, that's a good question. Uh, that would be the 1966 draft. I'd have to go back and take a look. I'd be curious to see who was picked ahead of him. But he was—he played. He started his college basketball career at the University of Illinois. Didn't go well for him, uh, I guess. And uh, he ended up transferring to Evansville University. Uh, and the last two years that they were there, I think he played in the national championship game for Division Two basketball. They won the championships, and uh, you know that kind of set him off uh, on his. Uh, on his career, so it was a great move for him to go to uh, Evansville, maybe a place that he was a little more comfortable playing at. What was it like watching Jerry Sloan as a fan? Was it was it like watching Stockton and Malone here? Did the fans rally around him like that, or was it, it was it a little more subtle because of how he deflected attention? Well, I think that, you know they they enjoyed the like again. Chicago is a defensive town, and so they uh, he became a fan favorite because. His goal as a player was always to take 10 charges, and he didn't care. I mean, I can remember him taking a charge from Wilt Chamberlain driving down the lane, and that's no easy task. And it's not like today's guy is trying to take a charge where they flop on contact. I mean, he was taking the full brunt of it and going down, but he was, uh, I think, I don't know if he really invented uh, taking the charge, but he certainly perfected it. And he was a guy that, like I say, he wanted to take 
uh, 10 charges. So he was, a, a, a like I say, a, a fan favorite because of the, the defensive end. And I can remember, you know, with he and Norm Van Leer in the backcourt, they were so much fun uh, uh, to watch play defense. Uh, I've told people over the years that uh, they kind of reminded me of old-school Oakland Raider bump-and-run cornerbacks, the way they play defense. It was fun one time, I uh, in, ter- in terms of the current flopping enigma that it occasionally exists. Not occasionally, all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm trying to be gentle with that. Yeah. Um, there was a flop one time, and Jerry came up off the bench, arms folded, and he said, he said the effing flopper. And that was, I mean, I almost lost it right there on the spot. That was hilarious. Did, did Jerry, when he was playing in college, was his style, I mean, like his rough and tough play, the same in college as it was in the NBA, or did, he, did it change coming out of college going into the NBA? It's a good question, John, and I'm not really sure what the answer would be to that. Uh, again, Evansville being Division Two basketball, you, you never saw them on TV. Nobody really knew about Jerry, but my guess is that, uh, you know, he's, he's always been the, the same, so I'm sure – Maybe in the college game, you weren't allowed to get away with as much as you were in the pro game, especially back then. So I would think he was still tough, but had to be a little bit smarter and a little less aggressive about it. But he certainly, uh, I'm sure, didn't back down from anybody back then. Well, that context is great, Steve, because it it really it, it puts it in perspective of what Jerry asked for from his players. And it, as a fan, from my perspective here, you would hear the interviews with Jerry and every time they won, he would bash a team. Every time they lost, he would build them up. And he had, you know, the same things he would kind of say all the time about working hard and digging in and earning your paycheck and all that. But when you hear about what you're saying about the, how he played defense, how his goal was to take 10 charges, he took charges from Wilt Chamberlain. He got the hell beat out of him. It makes sense why that's what he wanted his players to do. And he didn't accept excuses about being hurt or, or not being able to fight through a screen or the different things that I guess make us fans that saw the Jerry Sloan era so frustrated in watching modern basketball. It, it brings a lot of context to that. Yeah, I, I think yeah, it would be really interesting to hear what Jerry would have to say today about load management. There, there's no doubt. About that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the players uh, that he coached understood that uh, there, he wasn't asking them to do any more than what he did when he was the player, and that's so important. It, you know, one, one of the things that uh, our, our buddy Dave Blackwell always used to say is that the, the key to Jerry's success uh, with the team was the fact that he had the ear of the superstars. If you lose the superstars, you lose the team. And to have guys like Carl and John, who basically have the same work ethic as Jerry, that, that was a big plus, I think, to, in his success as a head coach. But I think he, he really enjoyed... You know, obviously his farm life, 10 kids, a lot of work, or ten, you know, 10 uh, siblings, a lot of hard work, and you know, kind of lonely on, on the farm. I think when it came to being a coach, even as, as a player as well, he really enjoyed the camaraderie and the closeness of team. I can remember uh, many years back, uh, within I think 10 days of each other, if I'm not mistaken, uh, both his running mate in the backcourt, Norm Van Leer for the Bulls, and Johnny Kerr, his f- first head coach, uh, uh, in Chicago, both passed away, and I know that he was really uh, hurt by by their departures. And then his probably his closest friend on the team, uh, Tom Borwinkle, when he passed away, that really stung uh, Jerry quite a bit because uh, they were so close. As a matter of fact, he told me the story once that uh, when he was living in the Chicago suburb of Northbrook, uh, Tom bought the house behind Jerry's, 
and Jerry uh, noticed one day that uh, Tom was building a fence out of the backyard. So he went out to check it out, and he asked Tom how tall it was going to be. And, of course, Jerry was 6'5", and Tom was 7 feet tall, and Borwinkle's response was, well, I think I'm going to build the fence six feet, nine inches tall. That way I can see into your backyard and you can't see into mine. <laughs> and that probably just pissed him off, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, he had to figure out a way to fight through it. Didn't he have a, a competitive attitude that um, he would not allow a player to to outdo him? I mean, he was so committed because of his – he felt that he was, you know, physically smaller, but he wasn't. But he was – Beyond tough, in, in, as everybody knows, but I, I, I read someplace or heard someplace that he, when he took somebody on, it was them or him, and most oftentimes it was them. Did you, did you have that? Could you see that when you watched him play? No, there's no doubt. As a matter of fact, uh, the other day I was talking with uh, Brian Douglas, who was one of the three guys that brought me to uh, Salt Lake back in 1991, the former director of broadcasting for the Jazz. And he was telling me a story back in the days when they used to fly commercial. They were connecting through Cincinnati to start the season, and uh, Hot Rod spotted Oscar Robertson uh, in the airport. So uh, Hot Rod called him over, and uh, he and Brian and Oscar were, were conversing. And then Robertson, out of the corner of his eye, saw Jerry sitting there, and he he turned, I think I gotta go say hi to Jerry. I've known him for a long time. And then he stops and turns back towards Hot Rod and Brian and goes, I used to get my 26 points against him, but I'd feel it for a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that. That's that's the way he played, that nobody was going to make him look bad. I, I kind of remember reading about that. Well, all you have to do is look at his nose. It was broken seven or eight times by uh, flying elbows that he wasn't afraid to get that base in there to... Uh, uh, to defend whoever it was or go after the rebounds. You know, he was a great rebounder. He, he, he really uh, treasured rebounds. That's why, the, you know, he, he emphasized it so much with the team because he was a guy that thought, you know, if you were going after the rebound, it was going to be yours uh, if you put the effort for it. And that's what he wanted to do. And, you know, I, I didn't realize this. Now, granted that they didn't make steals an official stat until the last three years of his career, but I saw a number the other day where he is the only player in NBA history to average more than seven rebounds and two or more steals per game for their career. That's amazing. You know, if, if you, I want to change a little bit, because I know, you know, one, first, I'm very humbled to be on the show with Jeremy and Dan Roberts, the <laughs> legends, and Steve, like, you know, you, and to be able to sit and talk about a legend like Jerry. But... You know, everybody knows Jerry as the, you know, the tough basketball player and the intense coach. And um, I think something that uh, I was fortunate enough to see was Jerry when he wasn't at the game and when he wasn't coaching. And I was so fortunate that when I would ask him if he wanted to do a video with me, you know, he, he always said yes. And um, to see him not at the arena and not with his players and being willing to do some of the most silly stuff that we asked him. And, um, and I think people really, you know, need to understand, you know, just what he was like as a person on the other side of the game and, and how nice he was and just how open and down to earth he was. Um, matter of fact, I'm going to share a story like, uh, Brian Zettler, one of our old, uh, train, uh, equipment managers and trainers. Um, we were just talking yesterday and he, he, uh, brought up a story about, um, he was at home and he was doing yard work and, 
and Jerry pulled up in uh, his white van and he pulled out a little table and, and two little chairs. And he said, I was at an auction or an auction at a rummage sale. And he goes, and I saw these and I thought of your daughters, Brian. And he brought the table and the chairs over and, and set them down for Brian. He said, we sat there and we had a drink together and talked and he goes, Oh, I got to get going. He goes, I got another rummage sale to hit. So, I mean, but to have somebody like Jerry, you know, to be thinking like that and thinking about Brian's little daughters and seeing this table and chairs at a, at a rummage sale and, and doing that for him really speaks volumes about what he was as a, as a, or who he was as a person. Well, there's no doubt, John. Matter of fact, I saw a story on Twitter that Wesley Ruff from Channel 4 posted about how in 1990, uh, because there, I guess uh, uh, things were uh, shorthanded at the household, that he had to take uh, his uh, two-year-old or three-year-old son with him to jazz practice to do some interviews. And at one point, apparently, the, the little boy fell off his chair and started crying. And Jerry went over and picked him up, consoled him, and did the entire interview on camera holding Wesley's uh, son in his arms. So that's the, that's a great story. And another thing, too, is that uh, yesterday, listening to some of the radio uh, uh, shows, and uh, they were always asking everybody, you know, uh, what's the, where's the happiest you ever saw Jerry? And, and everybody talked about, uh, you know, watching him run onto the floors, all smiles when Stockton hit the shot in Houston send them to the finals for the first time. I, I did not have that as my answer. I said the happiest I ever saw Jerry was those opportunities when uh, his son Brian or daughters uh, uh, Kathy and Holly had a chance to come. And at the time when they had grandchildren, uh, uh, when they would able to come up to Salt Lake City and, and, and stay for a week and come to some games, as soon as he was done with his media scrum, he'd get a big smile on his face when he'd go over to, to see his kids and his grandkids. That's when I always saw him at his happiest. Well, I think that it says so much about him. And, and you know, it, it's he was very private about his his life. He One of the things that blows me away is that he never won Coach of the Year. And that year he won 64 games, and Doc Rivers was 41-41. and 41. Doc Rivers lobbied so hard for it and got it. And Sloan just, he never let that define him. And he let the things that were important to him define him, like you're talking about, which is just huge. It's, and it's the side of Jerry that a lot of people never got to see. And the other thing, too, is, you know, everybody has this uh, observation, and rightfully so, about how intense he was during the games. And they probably figured that the, you know, he would go home and stew about it forever. But I, I learned early on that, uh, you know, when my first came in 1991 and got a couple of season tickets for the family, that my wife struck up a friendship with Bobby Sloan because their seats were five rows apart. Now, they didn't start out five rows apart. Bobby's seats used to be behind the jazz bench, but Jerry had her moved to the end of the floor so that during timeout she could report back to him who was paying attention and who wasn't. But uh, – <laughs> But Bobby always told uh, uh, my, my wife and later would tell me that he was so good about not bringing the game home. He was, uh, you know, once the game was over and once his, you know, media stuff was done, that uh, he was able to go home and, uh, you know, put it behind him. And uh, he looked forward to, to uh, you know, spending some time uh, with, with Bobby. Well, Steve, I know that we could, I mean, it's just, we could go on and on about, about Jerry and, and, I want to uh, thank you so much for coming on and see if we could have you back sometime just so we can 
wax on about uh, about all the all the different stats and the different uh, memories that not only of Jerry but of, of of your time in Salt Lake City. It would be it would be a, a thrill to have you back on sometime soon. I'd love to do it anytime. Awesome, Stephen. Stephen A. Yes, Smith says uh, uh, Damian Lillard will not win a championship at Portland. I'd like to break Stephen A. Smith's arm if that would be possible. <laughs> nice, you're so well, violent. See, that's the you know that's the amazing thing in the Big Sky. He, 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 all the time he was at Weber State, they never won the Big Sky and went to the NCAA tournament. You, you, you figure that was a that would be a given, but the one time it looked like Damian had a chance to go. Uh, guy named Anthony Johnson from Montana scored the last 21 points of the game to upset Weaver State in Ogden for the Big Sky Championship. I know that's something that uh, st- still today sticks in uh, Damien's craw that he didn't get a chance to play in the NCAA tournament. Well, I I think he, he Damien's one of the few players, and I'm so ultra competitive, he's one of the few players in the NBA that I really enjoy watching. He's just He just competes for all those right reasons, and so I hope he... Yeah. I, Hope he gets there. He's uh, yeah. I had a couple of I had a couple of chances to, uh, or more than a couple, to fill in uh, for Carl Arkey on Weber games uh, uh, when Damian was still playing there, and I still recall that he hit a, sh- a shot in the lane, a runner in the lane, with a half second to go in the third overtime to beat Idaho State up in Pocatello. If he doesn't hit that shot, we may still be playing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, Steve, so greatly appreciate it. Uh, I love your calls. I, I love listening to you on play by play doing anything. Uh, I love listening to you to baseball when you've got it, when I've got a chance to listen to you doing basketball, you just have a great way of painting that picture. And really hockey too. You're, yeah. uh, you're, you're good at all of them. That's, uh, well, that's, I appreciate that. You know, Tunis always said he thought hockey was my best sport. Huh. I used to do what I used to do. I used to do some radio for the Grizzlies back when uh, Ian Furness and Steve Harms was, were doing the right. games because they would, uh, when they did television, they didn't simulcast. They would move to TV, and I'd do the radio. Well, we'll have to talk about that because I played hockey my whole life. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about hockey, old school, you know, Eddie Shore hockey. <laughs> well, so, not, 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 well, not, not only that. I mean, the first Blackhawks game I ever attended, neither goalie had a mask. And then one time I was <laughs> going uh, flying to Cleveland. Uh, I was on a red eye to Atlanta, connected in Atlanta, going to Cleveland to fill in and do a, a Grizzlies hockey game there. And who's on the plane? But Randy the Macho Man Savage, who I knew back in 1973 when he was still uh, Randy Poffo and a minor league baseball player in Orangeburg, South Carolina, where I was uh, employed. Uh, my first job in radio was a small daytime station, and to make extra money at night, I, for $5 and a hot dog, I did the PA for the minor league. And the skinny blonde kid, uh, Randy Poffo, was on the team. That's what they paid me to fill in for my dad. Is a five dollars and a hot dog. So <laughs> every now and we throw in a coke. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. All right, Steve. You have a wonderful day. Thanks so much. Take for, care, uh, Steve. On our show. See you, right. Steve. You See take you guys. care. All right. Bye. Great bye-bye. talking with you. You, you too. too. Bye bye. Stu Lance is the color commentator for the Los Angeles Lakers, and he's been there since 1987. But even more amazingly and uniquely, Stu Lance played against Jerry Sloan, and also felt the pain from playing Coach Sloan, as you will hear him explain what it was like to uh, go into a game and come out of a game after doing battle with Utah legend head coach Jerry Sloan. Enjoy, Stu Lance. Stu, how are you, big guy? Hey, Dan, how you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you, sir? Good so far. (laughs) We also have with us John Absey, who's the original Jazz Bear that you've seen 
tormenting a lot of people throughout the uh, the arena in Salt Lake City throughout the years. How you doing, John? How you doing, Stu? And if I ever did anything over the years, I'm, I'm going to apologize right now. I'm so sorry. No problem. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we we really appreciate it. What we're we're doing this uh, this podcast is dedicated to Coach Sloan and knowing that you had a chance in in your career to not only come into town and 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 see your teams play against them as far as the you know TV and commentary, but I, I believe you also played against them when in during your NBA days as well. Is that correct? That's very true. Very true indeed. Never you can never re, uh, re, uh, forget playing against Jerry. <laughs> did you go up against him, Stu, or were you just hit around? Head, hit the head every time. Did you really? Wow. Yeah. Did you wrap yeah. yourself up in uh, bandages and stuff after uh, following the li- game? Listen, after every meeting, this, your, the sides of my body around the waist area were bruised, <laughs> where he'd had his big mitts all <laughs> digging into my sides. And, boy, I tell you, he, he, was, uh, he was by far one of the toughest competitors uh, you ever wanted to face. So was that – did you dread playing him? Did you go in respecting him? Or, like, when you – came up against Jerry Sloan. What was the thought process that, that you went through knowing what you were coming up against that game? Well, you, you knew you were the game itself in that era was kind of physical to begin with, and you knew you were going to go up against uh, one of the elite physical players defensively. But the thing that I admired more about Jerry was uh, Jerry would dish out the punishment but and then and wouldn't complain when you did it back to him. You know, I mean, he mm. was so... He, he didn't he didn't mind the physicality of the game. A lot of the players, uh, you know, they wanted to be physical, but when you were physical back with them, they're complaining to the officials. <laughs> you know, you know this. Jerry never used to say a word. He just went out, got his job, and did his job, and got it done. Well, I figured if I, I, I the way Jerry was, and I never got a chance to see him play, but I read a lot about how he played. But it seems to me that if you lost more blood than he did, that was all the satisfaction he required. <laughs> That pretty much capsulized <laughs> his thought process, I tell you, because uh, I mean he was just he was just a, a competitor. I mean, when you look up the word uh, "hard nosed competitor," you're, you're going to probably see a picture of Jerry. So, who were you playing for primarily? When, uh, what team were you playing for, Stu, when you were going up against Jerry in your primes? Well, I, when I came into the league, I was with the uh, then San Diego Rockets, who are now in Houston, and then when I got to Detroit. That's when we faced these each other a little bit more, and it was. Uh, I'm telling you, you talk about some battles, unbelievable. So, what was the, like if you could paint a picture for people of the difference between playing then and playing now? Like uh, besides physicality, like can you put that into words about how different it was playing then versus yeah, playing it, now? Yeah, it, it was. It was completely different. The, the game uh, now is more of a ballet in the sense that the athletes are. So 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 gifted uh, with their physical, with the way they play physically. Uh, not that we weren't gifted in a sense, but the game was a little, lot slower and a whole lot more physical. I, I tell players today, I don't know how you play defense without using your hands like we did. I mean, we we just held on to you, and you know, hand checking was never called back then. You could just put your hands on people and guide them wherever you want, and that's what Jerry used to do. You know, that's why my sides were. Always so bruised up. He put that big thumb in there and just make you go in the direction he wanted you to go in. So uh, it was just a different style of game. 
the game today is obviously cosmetically a lot better to watch, and the athletes, in my mind, uh, are a lot better uh, physically. Did you, uh, did, when you were um, on the air, was Jerry coaching? Were you you were around when he he was there? Because I, oh yeah, I've, yeah, yeah, I've always, I I've always, eighty seven. Yeah, I, I've always, always liked you. There just isn't anything better than you. And then Chick Hearn might be just a couple of six inches, maybe better than you. That's all there is to it. You know. <laughs> but yeah, you're, you're the get you're, a bigger yardstick. You're the best. <laughs> you are the best yeah, at, at what you do, and I I just I it would. Could you tell the same? I mean, you could see the same attitude on the bench when he was coaching that he would have on the floor. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the team kind of adopted his um, his mentality. Uh, and not that they weren't tough competitors probably before, but when you when you're coached by someone like Jerry, uh, there's going to be no excuses. And but you had a couple of guys that didn't have didn't need excuses anyhow in that era. You know, with yes. Carl and John. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> they were. It didn't take much for them to be like like Jerry was because they were tough in their own right. So yeah, it, it was a pleasure uh, watching those games uh, when the Lakers and the uh, Jazz would meet up. I remember Kobe's uh, rookie year when he was eliminated out of the playoffs, shooting air balls in <laughs> in Salt Lake City, and the, the Jazz went on to take the Lakers out in five games. So yeah, it was it was it was fun. But again, Jerry was. Uh, and on the sideline, you know, the same kind of coaching me- mentality as he was as a player. I mean, how many coaches get ejected for bumping and pushing officials? You know, right? <laughs> I mean, that guy was tough as nails. You had to, you had to thank Phil for all that catching him before he got to an officials most of the time, or at least <laughs> trying to catch him before yeah. he got to officials. I um, got, I got one. Really incredibly funny story that I, I honestly was almost to tears when I witnessed it. We were playing Denver, and that was uh, when Issel was coaching Denver. And mm-hmm. uh, John was in late in the game, and we were killing him. We were just eating him upside down. And, and uh, Jerry wanted to get John out because, I mean, we had a close to a 30-point lead on him. And Issel was standing right there in front of the bench with his arms folded, looking straight ahead and occasionally watching the ball. But uh, finally, he got uh, he got Jerry got John to commit a foul and got him out of there. And Issel, in just I mean the most quiet time of the crowd, I, I mean even I could hear it. He's forty feet away. He looks at Jerry and said, "I'm not going to forget this." And uh, he had he had fire in his eyes, and I can't repeat what Jerry said, but it was he came screaming down the line right in front of Orrin Hatch, the <laughs> former senator we had here, and he dropped a, a couple of blue ones that were just I mean I thought I was going to die laughing I had to choke it back, but he said I I tried to get him out of there you know but he he but just. Absolutely hilarious. He just was furious at Issel's reaction to him. Yeah, because, you know, Jerry was not one that I don't think he would have had the same reaction if somebody else would have been trying to get out their player like that. So Jerry probably took a, a exception to that. and uh, Major exception. Jerry came out. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> you know, one thing, Stu, you mentioned, I, I always found fascinating. I mean, Coach Sloan, and I got to meet him a few times, his hands were enormous. And... It, it sounds like, I mean, you've talked about a few times your sides hurt, and he obviously used that to advantage. But how, you know, that's something I know that 
in the modern era, they, they measure these statistics, you know, reach and, and, you know, the, your, your reach, your arm, your uh, arm width um, in hands, in hand size. And it seems like that can give players a huge advantage. Can you talk about that and the kind of advantage it gave Jerry over other players and not only in, in also, I think he was an underrated offensive player. I know he wasn't like a, a nail shooter, but he certainly averaged double figures and, and he controlled the game in a lot of different ways. Yeah, he did. I mean, yeah, his hand size was obviously a big advantage. Of this. Not necessarily the size, but the strength of his hands. Uh, they were just extremely, extremely strong, and he used them to his advantage. If there was, like you're talking about how they measured today, if there were to have been a combine back then, Jerry might have been the, the first player picked instead of what was he, like the fourth or fifth? Yeah, player fourth player picked, picked right. That year. Yeah, so, and, you know, we didn't have any combine back there. They just looked at you and said, okay, we'll draft you. <laughs> but, you know, Jerry Jerry didn't have to score back then. You know, he had some guys on the team, uh, Chet Walker, uh, uh, you know, Love, Butterbean Love. You know, he had some guys that could get the scoring done himself on, on their own. But uh, his his thing was – do whatever the team needed, and the team needed uh, that backcourt pressure. So he and uh, Norm Van Leer, boy, and Bobby Weiss was on that team for a while. Uh, you know, those were the guys that just made it impossible in the backcourt. You knew you were in for an absolute battle when you stepped on the floor against the Chicago Bulls led by Jerry Sloan. Did you ever get a chance in your broadcasting career, did you ever get a chance to talk with Jerry that much when you came into town? Oh, yeah, I definitely would talk to Jerry when we went to Salt Lake City and stuff, especially after he retired from coaching, he'd come to some of the games. What would, it, would the conversations be about basketball, or did he dive into to personal life? You know, what was he like in conversing with them after he'd retired? Well, he would mention a little bit about uh, somebody who was playing a little soft maybe, but more it was just, you know, hi, how you doing, how's the family, and everything like that. Uh, you know, Jerry was just a, he was a very, you know, he's very quiet. He, very self-assuming. He never wanted to talk about himself at all. Uh, I didn't understand why anybody would make any kind of a fuss over what he did. So, But it was just great to be able to see some of the guys that you played against. And But when after you know they retire, it's just like now when I come to Salt Lake City, I look forward to running into Mark Eaton. I just look forward to running. I never played against him, obviously. But I just look forward to talking to him uh, after, after games or before games. Is that unique in the NBA, still? Excuse me? Is that unique in the NBA? Like, is that something that's unique about coming to Utah and a few other cities, or do you have that? Yeah, in- yeah, I think it is, because it becomes like a fraternity, you know. Uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult fraternity to get into because just of the sheer numbers of uh, players that want to be in the NBA and those that are fortunate enough to make it to the NBA. So it's, it's sort of like a fraternity, and uh, you just like to communicate with uh, – the, the guys that are in, or in that fraternity or were in that fraternity. Before we let you go, Stu, uh, do you have any stories or, or indelible memories that you could share that uh, they could give our listeners that maybe that they hadn't heard before? Yeah, yeah I got one. I got one good one for you. I'm, we're playing <laughs> against the Chicago Bulls, and uh, I get a break. I get a deflection steal. I'm going to the rim, and they have a uh, somebody that shouldn't have been trying to block my shot because one the one thing that got me into the league I was my ability to jump I was always able to out jump people played out of position throughout my career in high school college etc and I'm going in for this dunk and I get hit at the top fall try to break my uh, fall with by using my hands so I break my wrist as when I land 
and Jerry's down there, down there looking. He looks at me like, get up. What are you doing? <laughs> and I'm looking up. I'm like, oh, my wrist is just killing me. I, it's broke. You can almost see the dent where I had broken the uh, the, the owner there. So, uh, And he's looking at me like, come on, man. You got to be tougher than that. Yeah. <laughs> I showed how tough, how tough Jerry was. It's amazing how uh, John and Carl inherited and or portrayed that same attitude because they always said each one of them to a certain extent if i can tie my shoes i get to play and that's uh, that's all they cared about yeah i can't think of another franchise where you had two guys that i mean talk about play with pain play with injury unbelievable i mean john i mean honey he didn't miss any games carl didn't missing i mean it was ridiculous how often they strapped it on but again uh they didn't need much urging to do that with from jerry because that was in their dna as well but i'm sure jerry had something to do with that mentality do, do you think you know in, in a, um over the years you know with, and i know you guys have been around way longer than me so but in my time that i was there for the 25 years i saw the league change i think you know and, and even coming back for, going as far back with with you and jerry stew is um the way players are nowadays, do you see or do you think players nowadays could have functioned and worked under um, Jerry Sloan and, and how uh, regiment he was and, and how tough he was? No, no. Uh, the players today are too, wow, I, I don't want to use the word soft, but they're, they're just... <laughs> no, I, I say it all the time. <laughs> Thank you, I would have said wanna, that for you. They just want to do things uh, the way they were they've been around you know they don't have anything to compare it to from a from an actuality standpoint they didn't have to play uh, uh five nights and five games in six nights so for them when you hear them talking about playing back to back it's like the end of the world right so <laughs> it's just something that you're you're just grown into certain scenarios and jerry and the rest of them were grown into a tough environment where they played every night. You played hurt. And if you didn't play, sometimes you might lose your job. Sometimes you didn't even tell the coach that you were hurt because you didn't want him taking you out of the game. Today they get the sprained pinky finger and they're out for a week. <laughs> I think, you know, and I think there's a lot to be said in the fact that, you know, because I, I think Jerry and Popovich were a lot alike a little bit um, in the fact that they didn't let the inmates run the prison. You know, I mean, because you oh, yeah. see a lot of the nowadays the players and they're kind of determining – you know, what's going to happen and, you know, if they're going to practice and, you know, it, it never happened on Jerry's watch. Nobody knew about <laughs> load management back in your day, did they? Load management? My. <laughs> we would have thought you were talking about a trucking company. I was going to say, yeah, that was, like, that was how, many, how many bags could the bus carry? You yeah, know what right. I mean? That, that, that was load management. <laughs> I see that on a player's stats and I'm going, God help us, please. But that's the way it was. That's the way it is now. You're so accurate. Is that frustrating, Stu? Like, has that been frustrating to see that evolve and to have you're still involved with the game, but you know, have to accept it? Has that been a challenge at all? Yeah, it's been a big challenge for me. Uh, they tell me all the time, "You've got to change a little bit." You know, you're too old school, and I know I am a, in a in a way. But you know, I can understand. Uh, like, if if I'm coaching and and John Stockton in his fifteenth year comes in and says, you know, I, I need a night off. But I can't understand a guy who's 22, 23 years old talking about, I need a night off. I mean, seriously, you've right. got to be joking me. Right. You're, you're a professional athlete. If you can't play and recover from one night to the next one, like a back-to-back, -back, you, you better get your conditioning in order. 
Absolutely. Well, I, from us, please don't change, Stu. Yeah, it's <laughs> the way you are. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, it's as a as a fan of the game, and I I desperately want to still hear that stuff because, it, it, in my opinion, there are too many people in the media that that kiss up to too many players, and it's it, it blurs the line and it, it makes it difficult to hear any valid commentary on what's actually going on. And I love hearing, you know, I love hearing your opinion and I love hearing the dichotomy between when you played to now and hearing about just the way, I mean, these are finely tuned athletes and that's something I've never been able to get my, my head around is what you're talking about. Yeah, finely tuned and they, they have to, you know, you're talking about load management. I tell them, I tell some of the players, even though I'm a good friend of the guy, uh, Ron Boone, yeah, you know, really well, I told him, you, you want to hear talk about an Iron Man? Right. <laughs> that, that, what Ron Boone did is it's just ridiculous. I mean, nobody in history should be able to start playing basketball at a certain age and never miss a game in grade school, high school, college, or the pros. Come on. That's cool. That's a real, that's a true Iron Man. Absolutely. Right there. And, and uh, I just think that he should still have the record. And, and I know AC Green was a Laker, but the way he got that, it was Bush, in my opinion. It's still Boonies and. <laughs> In in uh, in my mind, who's coming? Who's our next guest? Rum Loon's coming on right. He's after coming on. Yeah. We'll make sure that you he gets to hear about how much you like him. That's cool. Yeah, Boone Booney's my guy, man. He's the, he's the guy. He is for sure. Well, Stu, this has been an absolute pleasure, and uh, love to have you back on sometime. It's uh, talking old school basketball is always a an absolute treat. I appreciate it. Thanks for thinking of me. Stu, you're the best, and I look forward to seeing you someday. <laughs> nice talking yeah, to you, Stu. One of these days, if, this, if we get this world back in some sort of order, we might see one another. Yes, sir. I look forward to that. All right, Stu. Thank you. Yeah, you take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome, Ron Boone. Ron Boone is a Utah legend and has known Jerry Sloan for quite a long time. Was an NBA player for the Utah Stars. Also played for the Jazz, has the Ironman record for the most consecutive games played, and a unique perspective on being a radio and TV personality covering Coach Sloan since 1988. How you doing, Mr. Boone? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. Just um, cleaning up and going to shave and go to the grocery store and Get to the point where you have to plan your day, you know. <laughs> but it, but it's two thirty, yeah. Ron, well, you, you didn't you, you didn't go out and play golf this morning, did you? It was a little too cold for that today. No, I, I, I I'm not playing today or tomorrow. As a matter of fact, I'm going to play um, Monday, but I played yesterday. It's just I, I usually don't play on Saturdays, but I do play on Sundays. But I'm not playing tomorrow. Okay, it was super windy yesterday. Can I yeah, be Ron Boone? Windy in the, afternoon. the morning wasn't wasn't that bad. Windy, it got real windy in the afternoon. That's when it was kind of windy. John Absey wants to be you. He wants to swap positions. Heck yeah, with you, that you would know. be awesome. Let me see. You know, it's two thirty. <laughs> I think I'm going to figure out what my day holds. I was up at five well, o'clock this morning doing that. Think, think about this, guys. You know, from my schedule over the last fifty years, you know, there's been times when you don't have to worry about what you're going to have for dinner. And now you wake up and you have breakfast. Okay, uh, do I need to take food out for something? Well, like, yeah, you want to start planning dinner and how you're going to prepare it and all this kind of stuff. You know, damn, I'd rather go eat at the, at the arena. <laughs> That's awesome. 
<laughs> and I love, I love how you eat at the arena because uh, your table is sacred. Nobody sits there with you, and you just <laughs> nibble at the hot dog and then throw it away, and that's the end of it. So I love it. Well, <laughs> I just don't proud those guys. You know, stay by myself. No, that's I right. get that. I totally get that, <laughs> yeah. and I honor that. Yeah. That's the way you've always been, and I, I yeah, just yeah. think the world of that. That's okay. So thanks so much for joining us. We're, we're talking about Coach Sloan and and uh, his his legacy, his legend. And uh, we just had uh, Stu Lance on right before oh, you. Yeah. yeah, so he, he said, said to say hi. He say thinks hi, the yeah. world of you, by golly. Yeah, we've been friends. Uh, Stu and I have been friends a long time, guys. He, uh, as a matter of fact, he went to the University of Nebraska, the same place my son went. Mm. Um, he was a um, freshman. I was a freshman at, at, at a junior college, and he was a freshman at the University of Nebraska. So I got a chance to play against him when I was in junior college in Iowa. Um, and I remind him quite a bit that I got about 30-some points. <laughs> I was just going to ask, because he said that he, he, had, he said he had some pretty wicked hops. And so he, he, uh, he said he could take you without a problem. So I don't know. Uh, <laughs> no, he didn't say that. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. No, he was highly complimentary of your, of your Ironman streak. And in your, in your mind, you are still... The leader of that, uh, and our minds too, as a matter of fact. Yeah, we got. I got a lot of respect for him. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, so you've you've been in Utah for a long time, uh, starting with the Stars, and then transitioning. You know, being, uh, played with the Jazz briefly, and then uh, been with the Jazz in the broadcasting role for a long, long time. When did you start with the Jazz in the broadcasting role? I started in, in 88, so this is uh, just finishing my 32nd year uh, doing radio and TV. My first year, I did talk radio with, with Dave Blackwell. Then I started doing TV in 89. Uh, I've been doing it ever since, TV and radio. So it's, uh, it's it's been a long run, but it's been fun. So you came in at the exact same time when uh, Layden stepped down and Coach Sloan took over then? Uh, exactly. Well... Yes, uh, Jerry took over for the for the Jazz in 88-89 season. I think it was more, uh, boy, I can't remember what month it was, but yes, it was at, at that first year. I think it was, I, remember it, it was, I think it was December, wasn't it? I, I thought they were playing like Sacramento or something like that in December. Well, in December, you think? I think so, I think so. Yeah, that, that, that's probably about right. But uh, yes, Jerry's first year, um, and then he brought in Phil. Did he bring in Phil that year or the next year? I think he brought in Phil that year, I think. I think he did. And do you, do you remember Frank uh, got out in center court at the at the old arena and uh, lights went down and Sloan spotlighted all the way and, and Jerry and Frank announced his uh, turning over the uh, controls, et cetera. That was uh, kind of kind of interestingly strange to me. Yeah, you and I have a lot of memories of what went on back in in in, in those days, and that was a very unusual way of of um, stepping down and introducing the new head coach. You know, but but that was Frank. You know, and he was oh, the one yeah. that really he was the one that carried the franchise for many many years with his wit and <laughs> and with the, uh, the the things that uh, that you know he was able to do leading up to that um, to that year when Jerry took over. Uh, perfectly, you know, Jerry had a great coaching career, guys. I mean, yeah. I mean, just if you eliminate Chicago and just 
think about his coaching career as, as a Jazz. And even when he took over with Frank Layton, you know, he still coached over and, and won over 50% of his ball games. Right. He had he had one year, Dan, and I was trying to remember this yesterday, and I was doing a, a, a show with, um, and I should have looked this up before I talked to you guys, but uh, I was doing a, a serious XM show with um, NBA radio yesterday, and he's only had one year where he did not win 50% of his ball games, where he was under 50%. And, and that year he won 26 basketball games, and that was in the 204-205 game, and I couldn't remember if Andre Karolinko's rookie year was did Andre Karolinko get hurt or something that year? I, mean, I need to find that out. Okay, I can't remember, but that was the only year that he was under 500. He only won 26 ball games that year. But otherwise, over 500. You know, making the playoffs and, and miss, only missing the playoffs about three times, and and uh, just a remarkable coaching career. And in ironically, he said, if I remember right, that year that they won 26 games, they were projected to challenge. Philadelphia for the worst record in, in NBA history. And he called that one of the best coaching jobs he ever did was getting, wow. was getting that team to that record that, and then yeah. the year when they missed the playoffs, they were 40, like 42 and 40 and missed the playoffs by one game. They missed it at the end of the season. He called those two years, some of his best coaching because of the, the odds that were stacked against him basically. And no, that, go ahead. Go ahead. That, that's interesting that that um, because you know coaches know when they don't have enough talent to get the job done and they know they have to be creative and uh, uh, put certain guys out there on the floor together. I mean, you just get to the point you gotta you gotta uh, piece players together that you think can get the job done or play well together. I mean, and you can understand those comments that uh, and why he would think something like that. He missed the playoffs again, guys, uh, where he won forty eight games. Now that's probably unheard of, you know. Right now, you win forty-eight ball games, you should make the playoffs. Easy. Jazz made, you know, yeah, easy. I mean, the way, the the talent level, I think, the way it is right now, where it, it's just so hard to get to fifty, and, and but if you win forty-eight ball games and, and you miss the playoffs, I mean, that that means there's something about what's going on in the Western Conference. Well, you know, Ron, and and I know we were just talking about this a little bit ago. Um, about Jerry not making coach of the year, you know, while he was uh, coaching and stuff. And, and uh, to me and to us, you know, like a travesty. But why do you think he kept being uh, or kept getting overlooked um, for the, the talent that he had and what he was able to do with it and year after year produce? You know, that's, that's been a discussion for years, uh, and that's been a, a, a hot topic here. You know, since well, since yesterday, you know, with with his passing on on his coaching career and how he never got coach of the year, and, and Jeremy, I don't know if you know the number of years, but I know it was a high number of times that he was coach of the month, which says a lot for for what he was doing. Absolutely, and I think you just hit you just hit on exactly I think why because sometimes when they start voting on things like that and they start looking at the talent level that you have and they're thinking, okay. Um, he had a lineup or he had a roster that should be able to do exactly what, what the Jazz were able to accomplish. So they, they blame it on the, uh, on the talent level uh, and the fact that they had John and Carl with those bookends for, for so many years, regardless of how many players they were able to pencil in there, uh, the non of players that came and go, 
on the Jazz roster, those two guys, John Stockton and Carl Malone, will always be great. And so uh, a lot of times when they start voting, you know, sometimes they look at that. Then you look at a guy that, that ended up winning 40 games and he didn't have anything to work with, and they think, okay, that was a masterful job, and, and that's ended up getting the coach, you know, getting coach of the year, which is sad for Jerry, uh, but it does say a lot for, you know, for for John and Carl, who kept Jerry Sloan's uh, coaching career, well, got it to where it is right now. And Coach Sloan won uh, Coach of the Month 10 times. And it's in, it's insane. I mean, it, to think you win Coach of the Month 10 times during a career and never win Coach of the Year when I know Popovich has won Coach of the Year, Phil Jackson has won Coach of the Year. I mean, they, and they've always had – and I, I've heard you talk about this all the time. It, it's great team uh, – great coaches have great players. I mean, you just – and that's how you win in yeah. the NBA. Talent always wins in the NBA. And, yeah. and it's impossible not to win without talent. But and so it's crazy that Jerry not didn't ever get that final amount of credit. Not that he actually ever wanted it either. Well, and it's funny how you can look at this in a couple of different ways. Um, use Phil Jackson as an example, uh, and this is a this is a conversation, and this is something that you know people a discussion that a lot of uh, a lot of people have, especially on talk radio and stuff like this, is that Phil Jackson had talent level. And that was the reason he was. What did he win? Yeah, six in Chicago and what five in or something like that in, in yeah. LA somewhere in there. Yeah, I think but five. Always, always had great talent. Always had great talent. Now, how good of a coach would he be without those? Without good talent? I mean, can he coach teams, or would he be any good coaching a team without without talent? And so I think that's the reason you see some of these guys that that get coach of the year because those guys can coach talentless teams and they do a masterful job and, and of keeping the team competitive and winning more ball games that were predicted. And so they end up getting coach, coach of the year. But uh, Jerry, uh, he was passed over. He just totally passed over. And it's sad that, you know, that's not something that he can have on his resume. Bill Jackson would have failed miserably without the talent that he had around him for as many years yep. as he did. He would have failed uh -huh. easily. I really believe that. I really believe that. And after watching the uh, the last dance, you see Michael Jordan did a lot of of the dirty work for Phil. I mean, not I want dirty work is probably the, the wrong way of using it, but he did no, a lot of No, not necessarily. I'd agree with that. <laughs> yeah, so he put, he put uh, Phil Jackson in, in a position where he didn't have to do uh, a lot of coaching. At least that's what it looked like to me, or or, or that's what the uh, the documentary gave me the impression as that Michael Jordan really did a lot, you know, for his coaching career. Yep, he did. And 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 I I forced myself to watch game six, which was really hard, but I did. And uh, that's exactly the portrayal of the timeouts. They would go into the huddle and Michael would overstep Jackson and, and, and just get him to shut up. And then Pippen yeah. would join in with him because Pippen was close enough to Michael to offer an opinion as well. But the, all Jackson did was uh, get the magic marker on the board and do a couple of thises and thatas, and that was the end of the timeout because Michael said, we're going to do this, and that was the way it worked. <laughs> he, he did make two comments. I mean, he did make two recommendations during that series, and one was, to, uh, Michael, they're going to double you and stuff like that, and 
Paxton's going to be open over here. So he got Paxton. So he Paxton. He threw Paxton the ball. Paxton night. And the same thing came with uh, with Steve Kerr uh, against the Jazz. Yeah. That you know, Jazz are going to double. They're going to send uh, Jeff Hornacek or whoever over. They're going to send him over or, or John Stockton rather. And Steve Kerr is going to be open. Get him the basketball. You got to trust him. And Steve uh, makes a couple of jump shots. So yeah. Well, and I think rather. Well, and, and to your point, Ron, I, and and Dad, with regard to Phil Jackson, you look at what the team he put together in New York that failed. And then he also tried to get Jeff Hornacek, who I think actually is a good coach in watching him. Um, you know, I thought that he was doing a good job and he was actually trying to coach probably got caught in me being a little too old school in a, in the modern game maybe, or something along those lines. But he also tried to execute that vaunted triangle offense with players that really were not built for that offense. And to me, that was really, uh, that, that was telling of Phil Jackson that he was, tr- you know, behind the scenes trying to make this happen, you know, and, but he didn't want to be in front of the scenes taking the responsibility for it. And that, that told me a lot. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. And, and, the, and, and the other thing that I would agree with you is that that triangle offense uh, was old school and it was not going to work with the modern-day players that they had. And if it was that great of an offense, Every team in the league would have been trying to run. <laughs> right, yeah, that's you exactly know? right. And it only it, it, it only worked for Michael Jordan, and that was it. Well, and, and Kobe Bryant. I mean, if you had two strong players that actually knew how to pass and cut, which is really, I mean, it, it's like a, kind of a different, just a little modified version of the Princeton offense, basically. And yeah. you know, and, and so you just had players buying into it is really what you had because they had the wherewithal to, to figure it out. It wasn't overly complicated. But, you know, it's like, to your point, Ron, you look at modern NBA and how every team is adapting, you know, the threes and spacing the floor and, and the modern style of basketball that you guys already invented in the ABA. There's nothing new under the sun. But it, it's every team's trying to do it because it, it works. And so if, you know, the triangle offense was nothing revolutionary, you just had the right players doing it. You're absolutely right. But the game has changed so much now. And, and, and um, the three-point shot now is just as popular and just as exciting as the as the dunk. And uh, it's just a much faster ball game. So it's probably more fun to watch. The Jazz took their time um, adopting that three-point shot. You know, Jerry did not care that much for it. I mean, he liked it. He wanted you to shoot it, but he didn't want you to make a – um, a steady diet of doing it. I mean, you open, take it. Jeff Hornacek joined the team, and, and all of a sudden the Jazz became a little better three-point shooting basketball team, which once they added Jeff, you know, that, you know, was uh, since the Jazz on that run, you know, to get to the to get to get the NBA Finals. But uh, Jerry just wasn't that, you know, let's take 33s a game or let's take 25 three-point shots a ball game, that, that type of thing. And... You didn't adopt it right away, guys. You get that now, Ron. I, I, you know, you and I go back far enough to where you expect a red, white, and blue ball to be tossed out every now and then. Wasn't that a pretty ball, Dan? Yeah, I, 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 you used to put the best spin on it. I used to watch the rotation on your shots. It was great. I loved every minute of that. So you knew if a shooter was good, for sure. I used to, it's, 
tell kids at, at camp, they say it doesn't matter how fast or slow it goes back. It's still just going to be just as pretty, you know. Exactly. <laughs> In terms of current now, and don't misinterpret my question, but because uh, I love Ty Corbin very much, but you talk about the intensity of Jerry Sloan and the intensity now of Quinn Snyder. You're talking about the types of personalities that could set fire to a newspaper just by staring at it in some cases. What, uh, what's your take on the, the interesting difference, but the interesting similarities with their intensity? A little bit different. Uh, Jerry more fiery, if that's the right word, or if that's the word at all. But Jerry had fire to his intensity as a coach. Um, Quinn has it, but I don't think it resonates as strong as Jerry, if you understand what I mean. Yes, totally. Jerry uh, got total respect of his players, uh, opposing players, officials. I mean, he would attack those who needed to be attacked, especially the official. Uh, Quinn, as, as often as we see him get upset or the intensity in him in coaching, it's, it's entirely different than what Jerry, so it doesn't resonate. Now, practice-wise, Quinn can, and, and, I, and Jerry and I, I'm sorry, David and I get a chance to sit and watch practice probably more so than anybody. And sometimes Quinn, that comes out in Quinn and practice is what you see with, um, with Jerry. And he, uh, he has the ability to, to unload and call players out, which is totally great. When you can call out Donovan, you can call out Rudy, and you can call out those players in practice, and they have enough respect to, to understand why you're calling them out. The same way Jerry used to call out John and Carl in practice or whatever, uh, that let the rest of the team know that, you know, if I'm, if I'm calling out John and Carl or if I'm calling out um, – uh, Donovan or Rudy or, or whoever else, then you know everybody needs to pay attention because you know I'm not one that's just going to pick on the guy that's on the 12th guy on the roster. I'm going to pick up pick on the top dog there as well. But that intensity is definitely there. It, it's just a little bit different on how the game is approached, and 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 that's from uh, game planning and you know and all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's a little bit different. Jerry had a lot of fire in his intensity. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, Ron, when it came, you know, when I'd see Jerry come off the bench and, and uh, you know, the intensity, like you said, how much of that was just to motivate the team? You know what I mean? Like, how much of it was real, like he's really upset? And how much of it was you know, just like, you know what, the team's down. If I get myself fired up, they're going to hopefully rally behind that. There's a difference, uh, John, when you call out a player during the game and you're calling him out and you're screaming at him. And with Jerry, and a difference when he comes off the bench and he stomps his foot. You, you've heard that, right, Dan? He comes off the bench and he gets a little upset, and he starts stomping his foot like he's upset. And that type of intensity, that type of uh, uh, is, is different than him coming off the bench and just screaming. Yeah. Because when he stomps his foot, he is upset. He's mad now. <laughs> he's probably going. He's probably going to get a technical foul behind. You know, behind something that's going out on the court. So you're absolutely right. There is. Uh, some of that is to motivate his players or, or to make sure that, you know, uh, someone makes a mistake, you got to let them know. But, again, the fire, when he does that, is entirely different uh, than, than, than Quinn and, and how he gets it done. 
The interesting thing that I could also contrast as long as you and I have been there is the fact that Jerry did not mince words when it was time to come out with the words. Uh, they were as blue as they needed to be. And Quinn will sit there with his arms folded and dropped a very casual F-bomb on an official <laughs> running by him and then turn around basically and laugh. And he, he uses monosyllabic words, lots of words that have multisyllables, and he walks away. But he's let the official know what a dork he is without really offending him too badly. Well, I can, I can attest to that. And um, Jerry, I, I, I can mention Jerry's favorite words to say to him. Yes, exactly. I, can't, yeah. I, can't, I, can't, I can't do it on this podcast. No, no, I get that. I, but I know what you're talking about, man. But there were, there, there were times when he would make those comments, Dan, and we're right there at courtside. Especially when I was doing TV, it comes right through our mic. Yeah, right. I get it. And, mm-hmm. Right through our mic, and Hot Rod would say something like, well, you've heard it here you heard it here first. Man. <laughs> That's awesome. The, I, I, we, and a few minutes ago, I related a story that uh, when we were beating the, uh, the crap out of Denver and uh, Issel was coaching, and I don't, I'm sure you remember this game, but um, we, we, had, we were up on him by 30-plus, and Issel was just sitting in front of the bench, standing in front of the bench with his arms folded, and Jerry was trying to get uh, John out of the game because John couldn't miss. He kept scoring. And then finally, John got, he got him to get a foul. And Issel looked over at, uh, at him, and you hopefully might remember this. He said, Issel just looks at uh, Jerry and said, I'm not going to forget this. Jerry lost it. <laughs> in front of Orrin Hatch, of all people. I remember that. He came down and called John the worst name in the world, and he said, I did the best I could to get him out. You know, just, I, it was, I almost could not talk. I was going to laugh so hard. I don't remember that, but I'm not surprised that, that, you know, something like that happened. And Ispo had the, boy, I tell you what, he had that hockey face, you know, when his teeth wasn't in his mouth. exactly. (laughs) He did. And he had a suit on, and you could see through his two front teeth. I guarantee I remember that. (laughs) That's funny. Hey, hey Booner, you know, for all the times that you were on the road and and the few times that I was fortunate enough to fly with you guys and stuff, and, you know, I I, I know the camaraderie that you guys have, but just out of curiosity, do you have any stories about, like, Jerry just, like, kind of out of character, one of those things where he wasn't intense and he let his guard down and, you know, he he was just Jerry? He was just Gary. I mean, to the point where he um, uh, uh, just um, where he was just relaxed it. and and because oh, like to no, me no. when I would see Jerry outside of the games, he was he was a different Jerry than when I saw him at the arena. Oh, absolutely! You, you hit it right on the head. I mean, that that guy you saw coaching the basketball team was was not that soft-spoken guy that you see off the floor. Uh, in airplanes, I mean, I've only seen him get upset on the airplane maybe a couple of times. And Jerry would sit all the way in the back. You know, John and David and I sit all the way in the back now. But Jerry and, and his coaching staff would sit all the way in the back. <clears throat> that way they could see what's going on up in the front part of the plane. And, and I think uh, there was a time when there was a lot of laughter and joking and all that kind of stuff. And I think his dad may have gotten the butt kicked pretty bad. And he would walk up there and settle them down and, and – and, and with, with a few of those choice words that he's so good at. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and, but but other than that, you know, on the plane especially, he uh, never saw anything like that. 
Now, uh, away from the game, I mean, he just he's a soft-spoken guy. Doesn't and he has all these Jerryisms we call them, you know, from being a country boy. Getting know. sideways with someone—that was one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> what what what's that? Getting sideways with someone. Oh, that sideways. Was, yeah, getting sideways with someone, yeah. <laughs> I heard him say that. <laughs> can't, can't, can't play backwards. Uh, right, exactly. You know, I mean, <laughs> 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 Got all kind of things, but you, you're absolutely right, John. He was an entirely different guy and treated everyone with respect. Everyone, I don't care if you were one of his enemies as far as the pre- not well, enemies, my friend, not the right word, or someone that writes bad things about him in the press or anything like that. He always kind of treated it with respect, not like uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, you know the, I, the the one thing as well that I loved about Jerry, and there was only one other guy like that, that was like uh, Kevin O'Connor. Um, I, so, unfortunately, I, I made a mistake in the locker room one time. There's a long story to that. But he, he, he got mad at me. And the thing that was cool about Jerry is that if he got mad at you, once he got done kind of, you know, yelling at you or talking to you about it, it was over. And, and I yeah. love that about him because he, he yelled at me and, and I saw him again on Monday for the game. And it was like, it never happened. Uh, but he, he let you know right then. Oh, yeah. Trust me. <laughs> I, I thought yeah. I was, I thought I was, uh, I thought I was but done the, for it. But the thing is, John, is that he had to be talking to the bear. He wasn't talking to you. <laughs> no, he was talking to me. <laughs> he was looking square in my eyes. <laughs> you, you didn't have the bear outfit on. No, I was sitting in the locker room, and oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's a long story. Well, that, I, I don't that even. Was your, that was your first mistake. You should have blamed that on the bear. On the bear, yeah, that's exactly what I was. Yeah, exactly. it wasn't me. It was the bear. <laughs> me and the bear did that. No, this is John. This is John. This isn't the bear. But, but it was just amazing that he could just you know. He did it. He he got it out of him and just moved on. And I love that about him. Yeah, great guy though. I mean, I mean he's going to be missed. That's just sad, very sad, you know. And it, and it's a terrible disease. But you know, you kind of know it was coming. I tell you guys, um, when we were in Phoenix and we got a chance to talk to Hot Rod. Uh, you could see that, you know, it wouldn't be long. And when we left that learning center that they called it, that they had him in, he just knew then that it wasn't going to be long because it, he was starting to really deteriorate. Uh, you just knew it, was, it, it wasn't going to be long. And, and this is, you know, another one of those sad moments that really, you know, get guys like myself that's been around Jerry with Jerry and, and with Hot Rod for so many years, just, you really get choked up um, when, you know, something like tragic like this happens. Absolutely. Well, Ron, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Um, this so many awesome things, and uh, hopefully we can have you back sometime. It, it'll be uh, it'd be great to have you on and, and reminisce, and maybe we'll get Stu on at the same time, and and uh, we can validate that that you dropped thirty on him. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, so Jeremy, is the, the pay the same? Did he? Exactly. <laughs> yes. It. Yeah, it, it, it's the same. Yeah, yeah. Five, five dollars. Five dollars and a hot dog. So yes. Exactly. Yes. Got to eat it in small bites. Yes. Good job, Booney. You're the best fifty-year friend I've ever had. I uh, think the world of you, bud. All right, guys. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Booney. Hit him straight, man. Take See care. you, Booner. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye.
thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.